The doors were of faded gray, worn with age. The only traces of paint were an indeterminate cream stuck deep in crevices and around the hinges. A rusted ram's head door knocker hung from a single heavy nail at its center. Their mother fit a jagged key into the lock, turned it, and shoved hard with her shoulder. The door opened into a dim hallway. The only window was halfway up the stairs, and its stained glass panes gave the walls an eerie, reddish glow. Hello, it's Chuck from Above the Basement, Boston Music and Conversation. The voice you just heard was from the Spiderwick Chronicles audiobook, read by none other than the great Mark Hamill. Illustrator and author, Tony DiTulisi got his start drawing for Dungeons and Dragons, but soon began world building through his books that include Jimmy Zangwow's Out of This World Moon Pie Adventure, The Spider and Fly, and with writer Holly Black, The Spiderwick Chronicles, to name only a few of his wonderful books. Angela DiTulisi has worked as a makeup artist in film and TV, including Saturday Night Live, in MTV, and from musicians including the fellows from Dave Matthews Band, Duran Duran, and Depeche Mode, and is the author of several award-winning children's books herself that include Say What, Some Bugs, and Baby Love. This was an especially fun conversation for me as I used to live above Tony and Angela in Brooklyn back when I used to be an actor. Anyways, it was great to catch up with these two very talented people. So here is our conversation with Tony and Angela DiTolizzi, recorded in their basement in Amherst, Massachusetts. celebrity sightings in New York City was Johnny Depp. Was Johnny Johnny Depp. Depp. Really? He was filming Donnie Brasco. Yeah. And we were coming there to look for an apartment and we walked outside of our hotel. They're filming. And they're, fil- whole- and they're like, oh, they're filming some movie. And then Johnny Depp came walking out and I was like, oh, New York Walker. City is magic. <laughs> it's true. He walked right he up really to her, shook her hand. Here. He walked right up and I talked to him and... You guys didn't need any Johnny Depp. You had a famous actor living above you in Brooklyn. That's <laughs> that's right. Did you know famous, Chuck? Famous actor slash artistic model. That was 94 probably, right? We moved there in 95. Yeah, and you, you guys were there when we moved there. 95, 96. Park Slope right around First that. Street. Park Slope is successful now, really mostly because of us, right? Really? <laughs> we were kind of the trailblazers. We, and we really helped gentrify Park Slope. That's right. We did it. Is that a landline? <laughs> What is that? that We've is got all kinds of antiques here in the Dieterlichy <laughs> studio. Is that like what in uh, yes. Amherst, Mass? Like they they have actual phones? That's what we have. We have, we have yeah. it. You know what it is? I think growing up in Florida, the hurricanes always knock out the electricity for weeks. Yes, yeah, so you need to have something. So you else. need a landline. So we uh, we just it's like ingrained. I'm like landline, yeah. and people like you know would it's ask that question. It would feel a little loaded like that yeah. until we had that crazy snowstorm. That's yeah. right. And then friends were coming over using our phone. We still have a landline. I have a landline. Although it's why not... did you act so surprised? Well, because I don't hear landlines with a real, like, A ever. real ring? No one calls us. Oh, the yeah. The phone never rings. I never... I why we have a landline. I never answer my phone at home. You never answer any phone. <laughs> that's, that's true. <laughs> but I specifically don't answer my landline. He's phone. always like, oh, it was in my car. He says that every my time. My landline is never in my car. The it's cell phone. always in my house. The cell phone. But we've gone full <sighs> circle here because... You guys met in Brooklyn. We did. And I'm sitting we now next to one of the three Chucks that were drawn. <laughs> that were three drawn. There were several. <laughs> That's right. Tony and Angela, we are so happy to be here. Thank you for bringing us not only into your home, but into your basement. 
studio. So now we're below the ba- well, we're not below we, the basement. We were, we're above the basement when you entered. Yeah, and now we are in just the basement. in the basement. This yes. is actually probably our very first recording that we've done in a basement, other than the test run we did. And we had a couple beers and we're like, what are we doing? Well, we were just trying to figure out how to use this stuff. Right. And, uh, I mean, yeah. we should probably yeah. explain. Like, this isn't just. I mean, this is a walkout basement. There's lots of light here. No, There's it's lots lovely. of windows. It's a, yeah, it's not it's like not we're like in a, a, you I know, can hardly like see you through the cobwebs. What are you talking about? I had that book. Dungeons and Dragons? Dungeons and Dragons? The Monster Manual. That was your main thing that we, we you were doing. You hadn't done any of the children's books yet. When we first met? No. You first in the met, 90s. No, you, I was still... You okay. started with you, D&D. You were doing yeah. Magic the Gathering cards, though. Yes. Right? Okay. When we lived in New York, I was definitely working on Magic the Gathering, and I had worked for Dungeons and Dragons for a couple years, I think, at that point. Yeah. As and an illustrator. As an illustrator, yes. And, uh, and you were at Mac. I was. I was at Mac <laughs> Cosmetics. I was doing makeup. See, it's all coming Working back. behind the counter. It's, it's slowly but surely. <laughs> Did you see how it came back? It was little, like a jolt of lightning. So I, got, I got to say it out loud quick before I forget. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, it's gone. Yeah. Uh, and the yeah. early years of Magic the Gathering, which is now, that's also 20-something years old. And Now, Dungeons & Dragons started in what year? The 70s. And then you were hired as an illustrator for the company? Yeah. Okay. It was started by two men, uh, Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson, who were war gamers, which is... You know, I don't know if you've seen the movies where they're like, and the army will move here, and they would slide all the figures. So oh, these yeah, guys yeah. figured out how to do a game like Without that. Without the pieces. And moving the pieces, and my army of dwarves will flank you, and you know, that kind of thing. And <laughs> and they use those voices, of course, when they when they play. Yeah. But then- it Sound it like de- 12-year-old kids. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then it developed into the game that became a phenomenon in, mm. uh, in the early 80s, which I played. And is enjoying an incredible renaissance right now. Yeah, it is. It's it really, really is. really huge. Yeah, uh, my it's theory, like the cassette tape. The, the cassette tape's coming back? The, yeah, and Wait, Dungeons & Dragons. I'm serious, yeah. it's coming back. I knew, I knew vinyl was, has been on the... Now cassettes are. But anyway, what about I don't mind singles? Die. Oh, a single! What a waste of money that was. You remember a single? Was it like just one song? It's one song. Yeah. Actually, you know what? I have really? probably still some cassette tapes that you gave me. You're just getting rid of them. You're like, here, you want these? I think there was Elton John and Billy Joel, and that's all. About right. That sounds right. And they're all very elaborately. It's got your beautiful handwriting in there on, on the cassette. Did he make on the you a mixtape? No, it was just the tapes that he, he had. Did. Just tapes that I still have, probably in the attic, wow. packed away with all my other. Can cassettes. I have them back? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> apparently, you can. apparently there was money now. Yeah, the big resurgence. You you can. Well, it's got the you know it's got the Tony Dutrelizzi signature writing on it. So wow, it must be yeah, worth that's, something. That's yeah, a that's, font. That's worth at least fifteen twenty cents. <laughs> I don't think I actually ever played them. I just think I had. What? Well, you know, I'm nothing against Billy. Joel and Elton John, I just don't listen or to you. them. <laughs> or, or you. Well, I kept them, so that must mean something. So back to D&D. Yes, Dungeons and Dragons. So I had some friends that played. I, I remember not really understanding it. Okay. I mean, I was never that bright of a And kid. you refer to your friends yeah. in the past tense, which makes me think you... They're all dead. <laughs> They're all... <laughs> right. They yeah. got really into it. And, it. and you know what happens after that. What? No, Ron, tell me. What does happen after well, you, that? You saw the Tom Hanks movie, right? Yeah, yeah. They're in tunnels killing each other. Is yeah. that what yeah. you're saying? Yeah. yeah. That actually right. did some monsters and mazes. Monsters and mazes, or remember mazes the one that's supposed to like but they're you... supposed to be anti D and D because yes, it yeah. can make kids crazy. Their parents and yeah. he went crazy in the in the yeah. made for TV. Yeah. That was based Pictures. on a sensationalized case about one guy. Yeah, they thought had committed suicide, but it turned out he had just he'd gone home. Huh. And but so when they were looking through his dorm and stuff, they they find Dungeons and Dragons. So the detective suspects, oh, he's very into this devil game, and that's the media. Then it feeds a narrative. Well, that I remember starts, that narrative. I I totally remember that. Is yeah. that what the D and D staff told you to say? That's what it's telling me to say right now. <laughs> Hold on, I don't know what I'm going to say next. So let me roll this dice, and it will determine exactly <laughs> what I'm right. going to say next. 
Did you have a certain well character, something that you brought to that community? You basically were an illustrator, but did you have a certain character that was yours? So it has like subworlds. So if you think of like the Marvel Universe is, you know, has Hulk and it has Iron Man and yeah, the Fantastic yeah. Four. And then they'll do like, okay, we're going to go out and do a space story. So Dungeons and Dragons kind of operates the same way. Dungeons and Dragons is kind of the entire universe. And then there's all these little subcultures. So I worked on a game line called Planescape, which was basically all the mythologies of Dungeons and Dragons in one world. And I did all the artwork. I was sole illustrator for that for geez almost 10 years they created new characters that you could play and new monsters and i illustrated a lot of them and you did oh. the monster manual too yeah i did a... the i did the first color monster manual actually but how does that it... work they have an idea of animal x or monster x or whatever mm-hmm. and they send you an idea on just a text it could either be a text description and not an actual text that was a long time ago. no but no it would have been give a you text a... right. say... <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> And that comes out. You're going to get this. It's going to be in like 10, 15 minutes. You'll be able to read this. It's unbelievable. Is it coming out of the thing? Right. sounds. So it comes out. You read it. And then your imagination starts to fire. Yeah. That's it. Evil dog-like creature with hideous fangs. That's why you'd call me downstairs to model for it. That's where the three trucks came. Three trucks. Yeah. So and that evil hideous monster will like you'll do certain iterations of it and then send it back and you would go back and forth through the through the art director to the game designers to make sure it met whatever they envisioned for this thing and then uh, off I went. I think I remember seeing you outside crying, painting. Or maybe you were you were finishing up the the final. Oh, I would big spray the clear coat over the yeah, paintings could, when they were done. The yeah, because that would have killed all of us if I sprayed it in the apartment. <laughs> I'd spray a, a like a clear protective coat out over the art before I'd ship it off to uh, Wisconsin. They were based out they were based out of Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, for years. But in the later '90s, they ran into financial troubles, and then they were purchased by Wizards of the Coast, who created Magic: The Gathering, and now we're sitting on a Scrooge McDuck pile of money. Wow. And then they were later all was a good idea at the absorbed time absorbed by uh, Hasbro. It's yeah. still a very popular game, D and D, right? It's huge. It's, it's bigger really... than ever, actually. Yeah. And it's amazing with you know with you know with video games and virtual reality now. I mean, that's I wouldn't be surprised if they come out with a D and D virtual reality kind of thing. I have a couple theories. I mean, one I want to. I mean, Dungeons and Dragons also informs actually a lot of games, including video games that we play. So the structure of like your health meter and right. your armor and the level of your armor. That's all those rules are figured out during the seventies with Dungeons and Dragons and are later applied to all forms of gaming, including video games. But I think the reason it's probably enjoying a renaissance now is is twofold. I think we're starting to understand that devices are not necessarily always good. So I think there's been a real yeah. push to like, let's put the Pendulum. phones down, let's sit around the table yeah. and actually, instead of having headphones on and playing a video game with someone across the world, let's actually just sit around and order a pizza or as, engage a, with each as other. a family or as friends and let's... Isn't it amazing that it's become novel? Yeah. So yes. we talk about this with music and how getting people together in one room to hear a band there's something about this generation now that it's special because we're all sitting on our couches with our iPhones yeah. but when you get together with actual humans it reminds me a lot of what you're talking about the games because there's nothing like imagination and experience without the devices and the technology doing it for you yes part of that comes from having kids too that are going that through would all be, this. that would be my it, other right? reason I think the tweens and teens who were playing it in the 80s now have teens and tweens so you know they're like, hey, this is a really fun game. Everybody like you who's like, I had that when I was a kid. Is and now it was fun it and I loved kid. playing it. And No, I was never 
good at it. I never quite understood. But the, um, but the acting and the role playing, I mean, that's really. That didn't come until until later on in oh. my life. Though. You should play now. Yeah. We still they play. We still play. I mean, for for the uninitiated, really the gist of the game is you make a character with some number of statistics that you're going to be rolling to determine whether you do a thing. You have a dungeon master who's essentially the narrator of a story. And then, you know, you're in a room and the door creaks open. You know, a pair of red eyes are behind it and you see a sword. What do you do? And then whatever you think to do, you do. And that's what makes the game so fun. Because I'm having really... such flashback. I remember hearing my friends talk about it like that. And, now, it, and it, it informs everything I do later in my career. When I think back now is I erroneously thought I'm going to draw wizards and monsters and get paid for it. That'll be awesome. Mm-hmm. But actually, what I it wasn't just the characters and the monsters. It was the architecture. It was the armor. It was the weapons. It was how their belief system in the game affected the things that they wore, the things that they did. So Building the world around it. It was, was world building. building. Wow. Did you guys wow, practice that? Coat. That was pretty good. <laughs> mm. Wow. And Angela, when you think about creating a, a world when you read something, when we use technology with virtual reality and with the iPad and whatnot, it all does it for us, as we were talking about before. But there's nothing like an actual book. As a writer, you must have that sense behind the process that people are envisioning a world. Well, I have that sense because I live with someone who envisions that world. I can write something in a story but then for Tony to actually be able to draw something and draw the details of what all the characters look like what they wear what the architecture looks like the inhabitants in that world that's what I'm used to seeing so when I write stories because I'm used to someone who's also a visual storyteller I tend to just picture it like a movie in my head when I'm writing for me I'm not an illustrator so I write but when I'm writing I often think about what I hope the illustrations will look like and for that reason, I've often gone out and got the illustrators or found new illustrators to work with on a lot of my books because I'm like, oh, I picture this looking like, you know, a 1950s little golden book, feeling vintage, what I want the characters to look like. I often say, like, I speak fluent artist because I'm just right, used yeah. to being with one all the time. She has that unique perspective, I think, in, in supporting me for so many years. She understands the way most illustrators work. But she's much more on top of what's going on in illustration more than I am. I am kind of tend to be in my head a lot. She can hold her own with any art director of up-and-coming illustrators and artists and books and titles. When you're looking at starting a book, it kind of reminds me of... Ron, I don't know if you know this. I used to be an actor. Hmm. It's amazing what you learn about someone every day. I know. (laughs) One of the things you do when you're preparing a character is that you you build a bio of that character. So you have to create a world. You create the world and then you kind of forget about it. So you're making a backstory? You make the backstory. I don't know if it's something that's tangible to people who are watching you, but it creates the life of the actor on stage. I must imagine that it's kind of the same for the book. There's a lot of backstories, a lot of imagination that goes into what's happened to these characters coming in, building the world, what they're wearing, what they're eating, all that kind of stuff. When it's finally down on the page, you're not seeing what they're eating. You're not seeing all these little things you've thought about, but it fills up the character into a tangible entity that would be less so if you didn't build up that backstory. Am I thinking too deeply about this? <laughs> no, not at all. I think then the challenge then is what do you keep because what's important to the story? What propels the narrative forward in the story? And what do you unfortunately shave away? That's always the challenge when writing for younger readers, certainly with like a picture book, which I'm not very good at. She's much better at paring it down to the 300 words that a, the average picture book is. 
Hello, everyone. Above the Basement is excited for an upcoming episode with Old Crow Medicine Show. We are recording on Friday, June 15th, before the band performs at Neshoba Brook School in Concord, Massachusetts. This is an intimate performance and is a part of the Umbrella Concert Series brought to you by the Umbrella Community Arts Center. The Umbrella Community Arts Center enriches lives and builds a vibrant community through the arts. They inspire creativity, learning, and personal growth through arts education programs, performing, and visual arts presentations, and community collaborations. To get tickets for the show and to learn more about the umbrella please visit theumbrellaarts.org okay now back to the conversation i remember hearing or reading something about you tony with the star wars gig you did thinking about the line i'm your father how do you create a line out of a picture how do you create a picture out of a line angela just blew my mind so in other words when you're writing you have a different perspective of what that picture is going to be with some salient lines of your text and i wonder if that comes to mind okay so i'm writing well i've written and it's coming out this fall a book about glitter because glitter the stuff glitter the actual glitter physical shiny flex shards right because in a former life i was a makeup artist for me i start thinking about vocabulary that evokes imagery of something like glitter if i'm writing about glitter or if i'm writing a book about cow girls or if I'm writing a book about insects or animals I mean I start utilizing that vocabulary and that's where I begin or there's a spark of an Mm. idea I tend to write younger picture books I write in rhyme a lot for me it's more like songwriting I think than just straight storytelling like Tony does I didn't grow up a huge reader I grew up in a house that didn't have a lot of books but I had a lot of music so when I would listen to Jolene by Dolly Parton I heard stories in her lyrics and I saw the imagery that was evoked in those stories. Yeah. And so that's, I think, more comparable to what I do as a writer uh, as opposed to being a storyteller. So these books are like your albums. Oh, yeah. Look, or songs. I mean, they're songs. I Depends on them like songs. I mean, they're poems. You know, songs are poems. My stories tend to be like poems, and I hear them often like music, and I see them with imagery. I could take the music comparison one step further when you spoke about the illustration. So a really well-executed picture book, there's a symbiotic relationship. They kind of need each other. The words won't quite fully carry the story on their own, and the illustrations may not completely make sense without the words. And I often think of it as lyrics and melody that they really need each other. So you look at the the lyrics to your favorite song, Blowing in the Wind by Bob Dylan, or a great Rolling Stone song, or what have you, Billy Joel. (laughs) But if you just read the lyrics and have no concept of the music that goes with it, you're like, oh, that's okay, that's nice. Oh, he's writing about an Italian restaurant. Oh, that's very nice. But then when you hear the music and it takes it to the next level, that's why I feel like what the art can do. It's so great that you mentioned that because I really see music and lyrics a lot like spoken word or written word along with illustration and what we're seeing all around us in this amazing studio. What I was thinking about in your career was what it must have been like to be an illustrator, i.e. that's Elton John, that's music only. And then Bernie Taupin comes in with lyrics. So how was it to become both, where you became the musician and the lyricist at the same time? I think I'm probably more like the musician who would noodle. Um, When I've seen some musicians or 
if you get the demos if, and they're on their guitar and they're kind of humming and they got nah, nah, nah. that's kind of how I am where I'll draw and I'll see little flashes of the story and so I'll make all these little notes kind of around the drawing and then maybe I'll stop drawing for a moment and then I'll write more and then I go back to drawing again Interesting. so it kind of makes sense it's not like your stuff is so abstract it's going to have a lyrical quality it's going to have words that come to mind when you see a person or an object or a monster or something right, right? and even the longer format stuff I tell you this all the time I'm always thinking of it structured almost like a song where there's reprises and there's choruses in the story itself even if it's a long narrative where like okay we're going to loop back to this moment from the beginning but now the protagonist is in a different place so they're going to see it differently or you know which would maybe in a song I'm going to sing this first stanza but I'm going to sing it in a different key now right like it's a little different and if it's an old 70s like Jolene singer songwriter type song now when I sing the, the chorus it's through a different lens because now we've heard all the lyrics and so it, it, it deepens as it goes along and I'm fascinated by that storytelling structure because life is like that often do you listen to music while you, while you draw and while you write I mean we always have music playing here like yes. if we're working down here in the studio we usually always have music playing. If I'm writing, I usually can't listen to music or I can listen to soundtracks or, you know, just something instrumental. Right. But it's difficult for me to be hearing lyrics and then be writing them, essentially. Same for me. But when I'm doing my art, yeah, I'm creating art, I listen to tons of music and stuff. So what happens with a book is these things can take almost a year. The one I just finished took me almost two years. And so there are days when you come down and you're like, I don't really want to do this today. Like, I really want to go do something else. So I make, or you're like, I'm into it, but I can't get into the mindset. So I often make playlists of music that will put me right into the oh, You make spot. a mixtape, basically. Yeah, I make a mixtape. Joe has, has, has uh, astutely seen the fantastic pinball machine over there. The thing of beauty. When you live and work in the same place, you need some distractions. Tell me about it. I do the same thing. Yeah. yeah. You know, I don't... You gotta go office, blow off so. some steam. You gotta yeah. go, you know, play some Pac-Man or some Galaga or some Captain Fantastic. You have Galaga? Yeah. Yeah, there's like 32 games loaded onto that machine. On that Pac-Man machine. Yeah. Not just Pac-Man. Oh, no. no. There's Dig Dug, Tapper. Donkey Kong. You have actual Donkey, Donkey Kong. Kong. Junior. Yeah, you can play some Miss Pac-Man. You know, I bought. <laughs> gotta go. Rounds I bought out. my daughter's the Atari. They, you can buy the Atari now. Oh. It's all like, and you don't need the cassettes anymore. You just have the. It's all in the computer chip. And I'm like, oh come on, we're gonna play Pong. We're gonna play, you know, Asteroids. It's gonna be awesome. And instead of playing, I'm like, this kind of sucks. This is really <laughs> kind of boring. Boink boink boink. Boink. Yeah, like, Pong's a, yeah, like, Pong, what? Pong was me? always boring. I mean, I love. I used to love Tank. Yeah, I mean, I was you know. I mean, you were like seven. You're going too fast. Slow it down a little bit. I don't know. And I was so disappointed. We used it once, and I was like, ah, and then we're done. In your in 15 minutes, you're like, wow. Luckily, it was only 40 bucks. But you've yeah. taken it out of context, though. I mean, back then, you were like, it's never going to get any better than this. The graphics on this are amazing. Yeah. Wait, the Galaga holds up. Like Galaga, Pac-Man, freaking those love. classics. Centipede. You got Centipede. Kids yeah, still. Yeah, Centipede's on there. Kids love they Donkey still Kong. Love still holds up. Hey, what was the one where the guy would swing on the on the vine going across? The That's Pitfall on the Atari. Oh, yeah, oh, that, that was, was a, that was a great, great game. Have you ever been hired to do a video game illustration? I've been asked to work on right. films and stuff, and in generally, okay. I I don't. It's like it's my real commodity is my imagination, my brain. So lending it to someone else's vision hmm. isn't usually. You've, yeah, you've been called for things like video games. One of your classic works, of course, is um, Spiderwick Chronicles. Yep. where it became a movie in 2008 yeah, right that's right that transformation of those characters into this big screen like the first time you sat there and saw it 
on the big screen? What was that like? We were fortunate in that we were fairly involved in the process. So yeah. I actually got to see dailies and watch them Walk shoot. On the set. And, oh, sure. Yeah. yeah and see yeah. them see rough cut of the film before it was released. That first sure. moment of walking onto the set is of something that really was just born in your imagination. And now there's hundreds of people working on it and creating it in three dimension. Life size yes. versions yeah. of what you drew on the page. Was mind blowing. Mind blowing. <laughs> it was a strange, strange feeling. I, at once I felt at home, but also a bit out of place too, because I'm not a, I don't work on movies, but all the things seem so familiar and I, and I could articulate with anyone in the crew about whatever they were working on. Did the I actors had, pick your brain? Me, Ooh, Mimi. It's our it's dog. It's our dog. first dog. No, the actors didn't pick our brains, but the director, Mark Waters, was constantly... I mean, we talked fairly regularly while Mark worked on it. Jim Bissell, the production designer, we were really close with him. Yeah. We're still still close with Still him. friends with him. There was a couple producers on early who helped get the movie going, and we were very involved. And then Kathleen Kennedy actually came on and did the production of the film, who later would go on to helm Lucasfilm and these new Star Wars movies. And all of Steven Spielberg's team, because she you know, produced all of Steven Spielberg's movies. So you're dealing with like yeah. his cinematographer... And Caleb Dashnell shot it and his editor and uh, yeah it was crazy so it trip. really was just like walking okay, into I'm, a dream now yeah. I'm was there, just sit back and let you guys do what you do I'm not going to tell you but how was there a fear that they would kill the initial thought of what the story was or like they would do something and they wouldn't listen to you maybe sure. I would imagine that that must have been that's, a, that's always fear. a concern and any yeah. I think you probably talk to any person who's created the source material for a film yeah. that's the concern having watched enough books turned film you're making something completely different out of it. You're making it do something different. So you know it's got to change. You know it can't be... You have that expectation. Yeah, so I think it. what right. you say is is kind of what you said, Chuck. I just kind of would remind them, like, remember the spirit of the book, the reason you you optioned it in the first place. I think that's the best you can kind of hope for mm-hmm. and, and hope that they get it right. So many moving parts and so many people and they all have different agendas and, you know... I remember often saying, like, let's just... Assume it's going to suck. Yes. And then it will either meet or exceed our expectations. That's it. Low expectations. And that was it. We've talked to some musicians who have written for kids. We've talked to a guy named um, Alistair Mook, who's written, he wrote an album for kids with cancer. Okay. And it's talk about losing your hair. And it's all, it's very kind of, it's a fun, it's a fun and and supportive. And it's, it's, it's a really great album. And he actually does a lot of kids shows and stuff like that. But he also does grown up regular singer songwriter stuff that he, that he does as well. And they're both, and they're all, all fantastic. You kind of run the gamut with some bugs, and then you have Jimmy Zhang Wow, and then you've you've gotten a little bit moving upwards with the what's the one with the rabbit? Kenny, Kenny and, and the dragon. Kenny and the Kenny and the dragon, and now you're up and doing the Star Wars stuff. Yep. Is there a mindset that you put yourself in? Do you even think about it when you're when you're writing for a demographic, or is it just you're just trying to write a good story? Well, I feel like often we're giant kids. We already are in that mentality. You're in I this that. space. I knew that. Yeah. I remember you're you in a studio that is covered in toys, literally from floor to ceiling. And often listening to music that we grew up with when we were kids, we have to tap into that. But we also have you know, a young daughter. So that also surrounds us in her modern landscape. For me, it's just about what's inspiring me. That's what I'm going to write about. You know, if I'm talking to Sophia when she was four and she comes home and she's crying because her friend said bugs were disgusting. And I'm like, what did you say? And she said, well, I said bugs are cool. And I said, well, some people think bugs are disgusting because some bugs sting and some bugs bite. And she said, and some bugs stink and some bugs fight. And I was like, thank you for that first stanza. 
and I just came home and started writing. And so it all begins with a, a creative <laughs> spark. And um, right. our inspiration's always changing. You have a Christmas book coming out called The Broken Ornament. Oh, that's, that's right, The Broken out. Ornament. And that was inspired by a, a, a real, a real life, life situation. Incident. Yeah, yeah, where we were decorating the tree a few years ago. Angela had bought some glass ball ornaments and so our daughter was lacing the hooks and kind of handing them to us. And we had the, the music playing and the hot chocolate was coming. And I love decorating the tree. It's one of my favorite things from when I was a kid. Yeah. And and you're not looking and you hear that and you look and she's got her shoulders hunched and the oh, I'm so sorry and I was immediately transported back to being like her age and dropping an Hot ornament and my dad yeah. hey come on those things cost money pay attention <laughs> you know that kind of thing yeah. and you feel bad I normally can't do this you you're much better at it than me I just make up a story right there. And I just yeah, yeah. literally knelt down and said, it's okay when you break an ornament on accident, a Christmas fairy is born. And she smiled and I was like, gave her a hug and we're done. And Angie yeah. goes, that's your next book. And I'm like, yeah. no, 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 that's just She's not like, I want a- 25 fairies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. On accident. That was the caveat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, sorry, sorry. broken sorry. on accident. The tree fell over by accident, yeah. <laughs> when Sophie was a kid and I would tuck her into bed, she'd go, Dad, tell me a story. And i go, oh, well, what book would you like me to read? Mike Mulligan or Curious? No, 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 tell hmm. me a story. Tell You write stories, so tell me a story. And I'd be like... Uh, I can't, I'm not as spontaneous. If she asked her, she'd be like, well, a porcupine was driving in a car and he sees a skunk by the side of the road. Like, it just starts coming out. And, 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 I <laughs> and it rhymes too. And I can't, yeah, and it rhymes <laughs> on top of that. I just can't do it. I'm, I'm much more cerebral, I think. I've got to think about it more. So that is a very rare thing for me to be able to just almost not think and do it on autopilot. And then it took me two years to figure out what the rest of that story was. But I had the I Well, had that's the your spark. current project that's taken you a couple of years. Two Christmases. Two Christmases. Yeah. How was that when you came to the next Christmas? Did you reboot some of the story or was it just a, just another day, another week? An interesting thing happens in the wake of success, to be honest with you. So the Tony that you would have known, Chuck, who was trying to get into children's books was, you know, a 20 going on 30 something. And I, you know, I was trying to get those books done. The advance of royalties is not very big. So you're really like, you're working, you're working. You're like, I got to get this book done. I got to get it off to the publisher. Okay, I'll take a little bit of a break. Okay, I'm on to the next book. But once you achieve success and financial success, what then changes within me is this isn't good enough. I actually think I need to redo it. So this book in particular, I wrote the book. I spent a better part of a year writing it and doing all the sketches and doing what we call a book dummy, which is basically like a demo, if you will, of what the book is going to be. So here we have the page turns and everything. And I got to the end of it and I read it to Sophia and she's like, it's, it's good. And I was like, what? It's, it's just good? And I was like, I knew something was fundamentally not right. And Angela and I hmm. kind of tore into it. We had been in Florida and I, I had lunch with my friend Mo Willems and Mo took a look hmm. at it and he knew exactly what was wrong with it. And so I knew I had to he do said- it. You wrote the perfect midlife crisis book. That's right. Where the kid wasn't the protagonist, the parents were. Well, I mean, you talk about working and thing, being inspired by being a kid. That's important to not be constantly working from a place of nostalgia. Because you're like, oh, you're an almost 50-year-old guy that's writing about being a kid when you were eight. But you have to remember what it is to be that kid. When the not first the draft of that book, it was the parent's story. Yeah, Fascinating. Why don't you do two books, though, and one you give to the parents? Yeah. <laughs> no, really if, you're, if you're lucky, if you're 
fortunate you get it to work on both levels. Right. But that's the that's the reality is that it took your experience to even create the idea and the character. That's the nidus of that character to begin with. Yes. Yes. That's the irony there. It has to come from the kid's perspective, but you couldn't create that if you didn't have the dad's perspective. It really is like a journey, and there's always a story behind the story of how you get from the beginning to the end. You know, I love how you mentioned how you did the sound effect of the ornament breaking. It's something we you can recognize an ornament falling and breaking. You know what that sound is. I never like. had that sound. Even though, you. well, you, <laughs> I you, had a menorah fall. But don't don't you have? <laughs> I thought you don't have a Christmas tree too. I do now in my forties. Yeah. In your forties, yeah, because yeah, my it's, wife is Catholic. But it's certainly a. You don't even have to tell me what it is. When you went, I'm like, I know exactly what you you're talking that. about. Yeah. yeah, it reminded me of. Uh, remember the world according to Garp? Mm-hmm. Sure. You know, so he sees the the woman. They get out of the cab and she drops a glove. Right, and he wrote this the short story. It kind of triggered something mm-hmm. to write that story about the magic glove. She can wear the gloves and she can heal people with the glove. But if she takes the gloves off, she doesn't feel anything. I don't know where I'm going with this, but but. <laughs> Yeah. But I like. I Why like, are you putting I, gloves on? I like, I, I, I like you gloves like that ornament, though. Like you can visualize what it's yeah. like. Well, it's it just tells a the story from the, the trigger. Well, yeah. and that's right. what trigger. happened. Like, so right. he had posted a photo on Instagram of the broken ornament and mentioned, like, in a moment of kind parenting, this is what I said to our daughter. And then we woke up the next morning, and there was like thousands of likes, and people started saying, "My son broke my grandmother's ornament." There's something that really could resonate here. When you made that sound, I know exactly what that sound is and everything that it entails a really expensive ornament just hit the ground you know is this something that my grandmother gave us it yeah. is you know and my daughter's now going to be sad because she br- there's a whole bunch of things that happen that flood yeah. at you i collect uh 1950s japanese salt and pepper shakers so do i so does chuck yeah, yeah. Usually with anthropomorphic characters. There's a whole cabinet of them above the basement, uh, upstairs. And I, so there's this little, you like that? Dot com. That's for you. Dot com. Above the basement. (laughs) Dot com. Dot com. I have this little egg timer and it's a little mouse and I used to play with it. It was my grandparents and I used to spend a lot of time with them. And when my grandmother passed away, my grandfather gave it to me. And I had to think about, okay, if it's not an ornament, what would it be like to be Sophia? What if she broke that? What if our daughter broke that and how would she feel? Thinking that it's just one of the other things in the cabinet, but also it means so much to me. The broken ornament, though, is very metaphorical for a family. I mean, you're going to have a broken ornament every once in a while. That's correct. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. it's very powerful to me, even as someone who didn't grow up with it. I, I live in the world of Christmas trees, and, and now my family might... You live in a world of Christmas trees? Might, you know. Wow. You know, every, <laughs> this world? Every, every, most American Jews grow up that way. And it's very special. And actually, for me, it was really awesome to, to marry into a family that had that as a, such a solid tradition. It was like, it was really special to have as, as an adult. Well, and we had to ask ourselves, yeah. like, what does Christmas mean? Yeah. And so this kid in this book is, he's like, it means having more of things. Because when you're a kid and you like something, you really just want more of it. Right. Yeah. You're like, oh, we need a bigger tree so that Santa has more space to leave more presents. Right. And so what happens when you break one thing? Oh, you can get more of that, but you can't. So oh, going away back to kind of what you were initially asking like what are you tapping what are you doing I'm trying to impress the 9 year old or the 10 year old or the 12 year old version of me 
And I'm also trying to impress my daughter. It's funny because we worked on the cover for this book a lot. There was a lot of revisions for the cover. Soph had made a card for you. It's on the fridge right now and it says, I think the new cover looks amazing. And it was like, oh, it doesn't just look good anymore. It looks amazing. Amazing. She's impressed. I got from good. Got from the the shoulder shrug and it's all right. When is it coming out? September. September 2018. Yes. What's your next thing? Just add glitter. Just a glitter, right, right, yeah, right, right. That's October 9th. What's the, the bullet of your it's, book? The, the question is, is there such thing as too much bling? <laughs> Depends on just how much you bring. Ah. Wow. So we'll see. See? With the rhyme <laughs> right there. I know, I can't, yeah. With the rhyming and the Not talking. Me, no, the... I, can't, I can't do that. And the illustrator's who? Uh, her name's Samantha Cotterell. The illustrations are super cool. It's actually all in 3D and it's photographed. So she cut out scenes and characters oh, and used real glitter. So it's three-dimensional sets, essentially. Ah, real glitter. Uh, and then it was photographed. The publisher, Simon & Schuster, was super excited, and they're springing for real glitter ink. So all the pages are going to have glitter inside. Oh, too. sweet. Oh, Parents will love you when the glitter gets all over their couches. And yeah. I know. Yeah. It is the herpes My- of crafting. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Chuck, you have a little the, on your cheek. The herpes, <laughs> um, the herpes of crafting. <laughs> yeah. I like that a lot. One of the last times I was in Northampton, okay. the bookstore there had a Tony Dutralizzi children's book display in the bookstore. Wow. Yeah. And you don't remember it? It was a special art display, display of all these different children's books and okay. your, yours is part of it. Oh, you're that's thinking you're thinking of the, the Michelson Gallery. You're thinking of the Michelson, Michelson Gallery. Michelson Gallery. Yes. So, it wasn't a, so it wasn't a bookstore, it was a gallery. That's a gallery. A gallery yeah. and a bookstore. I mean, they do sell books, but yeah, okay. it's primarily an art gallery. We work closely with the Eric Carle Museum of Picture mm-hmm. Book Arts. I mean, there's already a, a very robust group of children's book writers and illustrators in the area, but then people are always coming here to, to events. And I'm like sure that. it's kind of a mecca for that. Last year, we went and visited the Norman Rockwell Museum. Oh, yeah. yeah. And so I just missed you getting in there and having your exhibit there. Is it still yeah. there? It's there till the end of May. Yeah. Really? The May end 27th. of May? Yeah. What's hanging up in there? Is it Jimmy Zangwau or what's, what's in there? Yeah, I mean, it's crazy, Chuck, because that just- It's a great museum. It is a great museum. I mean, we've been going there for years ourselves. And, and I mean, Norman Rockwell was a huge influence. I mean, there's I grew up on it, probably like so many people. The museum, has, what they've been kind of dealing with is that generation that grew up on Rockwell is kind of- aging out. And so they, they've been looking at ways to bring in younger people to the museum. And so... Um, How does it feel to be young? I know. <laughs> yeah. That, so they reach out to you? Uh, yeah, exactly. No, I think they, they want the... It's not it's true, me, it's the people I'm reaching, I think, is what they're yeah. looking at. Well, and a lot a, of museums are doing this. They're trying to reach families. Yeah, but yes. you're, in the success, I would venture to say that in your success now, this is a moment of time where you can be looked at as a... Old person. A younger <laughs> Rockwell. or like I think you they know? refer to it as a mid-career retrospective. That I mean, sounds good. I'll, I'll go with that. Mid-career? Mid-career. It's very optimistic. That yes, you know, it is. That's, it's not that's, the end well, of he's career. He's been making art for, what, 25 years? Yeah, I mean, as a, as a paid illustrator yeah. and an author now. Yeah. So hopefully, you know, mid-career, maybe another... Hopefully. I do want to ask about Duran Duran. Oh. Mm, okay. The reflex? So that... It's a the reflex. It's a lonely child or an only child? The weird lyrics on that one were really weird. You did makeup for them, right? I did a lot of bands. You did makeup for a lot of bands. <laughs> and you, did, yeah, never mind. Yeah, <laughs> all those things. Excellent. <laughs> yes, uh, I did makeup for a lot of bands. Yeah, I when saw we lived that in New York. Yeah, uh, and Duran Duran <laughs> being one of them. And Bill Clinton, who plays a saxophone. Yes, yeah. I did makeup. Hey. For yeah. Bill Clinton Come as well. Now. The thing that I loved about makeup, I wasn't one of these people who was like, oh, I love all the textures and the new colors. And I loved the interaction. I was a kid that grew up watching Saturday Night Live, seeing like smart, funny, amazing women 
and thinking like, I want to work on that show. Yeah. You did theater as an adult, but I grew up doing a lot of theater. I loved performers. These people, I just thought they were so cool. They were artists. Nobody in my family was an artist. One of my early jobs was working at like a clinic counter at the mall, yeah. which is when I met Tony in Florida. It's you're, like, I want to- getting your colors done? You want to go to Chick-fil-A yeah, for lunch? <laughs> or TGI Fridays? <laughs> oh, they got a Ruby Tuesday. So you I gave her three choices. Ruby Tuesdays. Actually, a friend in a band introduced yeah, us. Friend we, in were a friend. Band. we had a f- guy friend. in a band that we were both friends yeah. with. So he was like, you have to meet my friend Tony. He has just as sick a sense of humor as you do. Yeah. So Tony's like, listen, I want to move to New York. I want to do kids books. I was like, I've never been to New York. I want to do makeup for TV. Let's move. And we moved. So she worked at the Today Show. I don't know if we made that clear, like for yeah. for many years. Saturday Night Live and, and the to Today Center Show. Live. Yeah. I remember one day you called me, you were on your way home, but you were like an hour late. And you were like, I just sat in the makeup room and talked to Carlos Santana for like an hour. And she and she was like, he was amazing. He, he was, was amazing. And just so kind and so wonderful. And like, you know, he's just like lint rolling his hat while he's talking to me. And just, you know, one of these moments that just burned in my mind. And even when you met some of the folks who worked on the Spiderwick film, I mean, some of them, same thing. They're just very down to earth. You know, you asked like, did, did they ask about like their character? Not so much, but some of them were just like, like Andrew McCarthy had kids. So he knew my books of pretty in pink andrew mccarthy yes. yeah he played the the father in the spiderwick film blaine he played the douchebag dad yeah the douchebag he, was blaine? Like, he was like blaine grown up i remember going to breakfast yeah. with with the director mark waters they'd cast just about everybody at that point but they hadn't cast the father he said you're not going to believe who we have for the dad and that's exactly what he said. It's Blaine grown up. Like, this is, it's going to be perfect. <laughs> Can you imagine building your career on just being an asshole? That's how you, that's how you are. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, guys, it's such a pleasure seeing you again. It's not very often you get to be next to neighbors who... I mean, we weren't, we weren't close, close, but we saw you guys all the time. We'd go over for the Oscars. You introduced us it. to the first episode of South Park. I did. Yes. yes. You sent you us. You brought the, it over on VHS tape. You uh, sent us the, the that pilot that they the, had made. The Chris, the Jesus. Yes. Santa yes. Fight. Yes. Uh, yeah. Still, yes. We have you still to genius. thank. Well, that's, <laughs> that's uh, it. I can. That's I'll it. put that on my resume now. That's, that's awesome. It. But it's so great to see you guys again. Thanks for having us in your house. Thanks. Really so appreciate much. it. Thanks for coming. Awesome. You can see Tony's art, find out where it's being shown, and purchase his books at dtolizzi.com. And learn more about Angela and her books at angeladtolizzi.com. Go to abovethebasement.com where you can join us on Patreon, sign up for our newsletter, listen and subscribe to our podcast, like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter, and look at all the nice pictures we post on Instagram. We are everywhere. On behalf of Ronnie and myself, thanks for listening. Tell your friends, and remember, Boston music, like its history, is unique. How would you like to join us in creating great conversations that inspire and connect? Patreon is a membership platform that provides a way for creators like us to build relationships and provide exclusive experiences to subscribers or patrons. We've been self-financed since we got off the ground in June of 2016, but in order to continue to fully invest all we can in each episode, we need your patronage. For more information, please go to patreon.com forward slash above the basement.